Nothing like getting up at 5.30 in the morning and having to clear the driveway for the second time in 12 hours. Glad that snowstorm is over. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, and Laura Johnston. Are you all dug out? Chris, I know you had to dig out multiple driveways yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of living between two places right now, and I, I, uh, I, I did have to uh, assist in the shoveling of two two driveways and one stuck car yesterday. So, uh, but we're good now. Everything's fine. We can get out and about. Although we're not getting out and about because of the coronavirus, everybody should stay home. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, Jane, you cleared out. Ditto. I, I agree with Chris. Yeah, you know, there are our driveways pretty clear and everything, but hey, we're not going anywhere. I got my no no snow snow this morning, but last night it took me an hour and a half with my husband to clear out. And I was like, this is a lot of snow. I think it's the most we've had in the four and a half years we've been here in this house. Yeah, we have over, I think it's 14, 15 inches. I have a big table out back and I, I've been tempted to go out with a ruler, but I really don't want to know. That was like, in the places where I had a shovel, where I couldn't use the snow thrower, it felt like I was just shoveling water. I mean, it was so so thick and so heavy. What a miserable first snowstorm. Okay, let's begin. What's the latest and Republican-sponsored plan for dealing with the very corrupt House Bill 6 nuclear plant bailout and racketeering case? Jane Cahoon, we, we keep waiting for movement. We keep waiting for somebody to come to the rescue of Ohio ratepayers and stop this stinky deal. This one might be it. Well, we got something, but I but I think critics would say it's it's not much. But anyway, Jim Hoops, the Republican uh, representative who chairs that committee that's been looking at what to do with with House Bill six on Tuesday, he introduced a bill that would essentially delay the bailout subsidies for a year. And that would allow time to do a third party audit to ensure that the money is really needed to keep the plants operating. It would only allow the plant's owner to collect the subsidies if the audit finds that the money is needed for the plants to break even financially. So perhaps interestingly, the House Speaker, Bob Cup called Hoops' proposal a starting point for talks during committee hearings during this limited lame duck session we have going on here uh, between now and Christmas, I guess. So so we'll need to watch that carefully to see what changes they might make to this framework. They're, they're dealing with a lot of stuff. But um, All right. let me remind people that the HB6, which was to provide $1.3 billion to the nuclear plants, was passed without requiring First Energy, which owned the plants at the time, to provide any evidence whatsoever that they actually needed the money. It was one of those deals where it boggles the mind that they came in and they said, hey, we need $1.3 billion. Please give it to us. And when they were asked for proof, they said, well, we can't give you that because we're in bankruptcy court. It's confidential. And they gave them the money anyway. We now know there was $60 million in First Energy cash that was used as bribe money to get that done, which has led to all sorts of people being charged. Let me ask you about a second part of it, though. First Energy no longer owns the, the nuclear plants. They dished them off to get a away from that bad publicity. But there was a second part of this bill that is quite lucrative for First Energy. It's the part that really makes them wealthy. And it was it's a decoupling that guaranteed them a sweetheart rate structure based on their best year. So it wasn't based on an average of their last 10 years. It was the highest use of electricity in Ohio, I think it was 2018. 2018, they were, right. They were guaranteed that. Is that being blocked too? Because that was 
that's really what the corruption bought them. That's the money that matters to them. So it's our understanding, and we're trying to get further clarity on this, that it, this new bill would actually remove that that sweetheart rate structure that you referred to. And uh, that doesn't mean, you know, they do away with the whole concept of decoupling, which is still in state law, but they they would do away with this sweetheart deal. Now, as I said, I'm still skeptical about what's going to happen as it works its way through the process. They have a history of taking things out and sticking things in. So, but as introduced, that that's what it does. It also would undo this provision that changed how First Energy and other utilities report their profits for the state. They were allowing them to report profits as an average of their three Ohio utilities, Ohio Edison, the Illuminating Company, and Toledo Edison. And, you know, critics said that change would allow First Energy to avoid issuing refunds to customers for more profitable subsidiaries by by diluting them with the with the less profitable ones. So, but under this bill, apparently they they would have to go back to breaking out profits for each individual company for for state regulatory purposes. So, uh the the other thing it would do, it would keep those coal plant subsidies that are in there. I think those have already begun, but it would would require the, these utilities that own those coal plants to make a good faith effort to sell them. All right. Let me, let me ask you this. You're wondering whether this thing will get watered down and that First Energy still comes out whole. You know, First Energy, while they had claimed at the beginning, we act with the greatest of ethics, we're an ethical company, their executive suite's getting vacuumed out. Four people are gone with disclosures that, yeah, we got some ethical challenges. Can they really still wield any power? I would think that legislators would see them coming and say, get the hell away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> but but if if you're right that there might be some machinations to put back the decoupling provision, it would seem to say that First Energy still has some clout. Is it possible they still have clout after all of this? Well, you never know what kind of information they might have on people. I, I That's just a comment there. It doesn't, it's not based on anything I know, but you just never know. You know, I, I should also mention, too, that this whole thing about just delaying the the subsidies, the critics like Democrat State Rep. Dave Leland, who's the leading Democrat on that HB6 study committee, and the Sierra Club both say, this is just like kicking the can down the road. We should just get rid of this. Ohioans shouldn't see any of this in their utility bills as the result of the largest corruption scandal in Ohio history. And, you know, they just need to to do something about it, not kick well, the can down the road. And we had heard of closed backdoor discussions by people trying to preserve all this stinky stuff that if they wait long enough, Ohioans will forget about it. And this seems mm-hmm. like hoops is trying to institutionalize waiting. Like if they postpone it for a year Will anybody still be talking about it? I can guarantee we will be, but (laughs) who else will be? We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should we be paying any attention to prominent Northeast Ohio Tea Party leader Tom Zawistowski's, I think I got his name right, plan for Donald Trump to declare martial law and order a new election? Now, Chris Ranowski, I'm betting your answer is going to be no, but 
he is a prominent guy. He did do this. He did catch some headlines. Let's talk about this kind of lame-brained idea. Actually, I'm going to surprise you and say that, yes, we should actually be paying attention to this because <laughs> martial law is currently trending on Twitter. And this seemingly harebrained idea that he floated in a full-page ad in The Washington Times has caught the attention of twice-convicted perjurer and recent recipient of a pardon, Mr. Michael Flynn, I guess General Michael Flynn. Uh, and some other military folks who are are calling for things like the jailing of journalists, uh, martial law, you know, military tribunals, uh, some very anti-democratic things that might seem at ho- more at home in a place like Turkey or, you know, uh, Russia or, you know, the, the sort of strongman argument that we need to throw out the results of this election and and hold a new one and start throwing people, political enemies and and journalists in jail. This is this is some scary stuff. You know, it might be it might come from an unserious person, but you know, it's kind of scary. And I and I think what's I think what needs to be said about Zawatowski's movement, which is the what is it, the We the People conference, We the People Convention, is that their press release for this has a very prominent red donate now button. And so this is very in keeping with the kind of grift style outrage that that they have been peddling since the end of this election. Every one of these these harebrained attorneys that are filing these lawsuits all over the country are soliciting mountains of money. And it's what feels like a cash grab on the way out the door is also really seriously causing a lot of the dangerous rhetoric to get out there. So we can well, treat- let me ask you this. Has, have, have you read anything? I'm just not familiar with this. I, I mean, I would think that simply declaring martial law is not something that a president can easily do. I mean, I don't think they can on a whim say, I'm declaring martial law. Everybody's got to stay home, jail, all the journalists. Has anybody written uh, an analytical piece that you've seen on what it would take for a president to be able to do this nonsense? What, what Flynn is proposing is something that is sort of Lincoln-esque, which is suspend habeas corpus. You know, they're, they're treating this as, as, as if it's a national emergency and, you know, not as if the president of the United States lost an election by six million votes and, but and if an every almost court, irreversible electoral college. So. But you've got you've to be able to demonstrate that crisis. And they've had a hearing and countless courts where judges have said there is no crisis. Even, right. and, even and, the attorney general, who has been a shill for the president since he was appointed, came out yesterday and said, there's no there's no there there. There's no fraud. There's nothing. Forget it. So I, I still think it would be awfully difficult for the president to just unilaterally say, I'm calling a martial law. I'm putting everything into abeyance. I, I just well, but that's but, but that's the line we crossed. What they're trying to do is not within the bounds of what our government would or should allow. I mean, there this is a legitimate authoritarian power grab. If if it's attempted, now keep in mind this is just some Tea Party politician from Ohio who you know I mean I mean he's probably pretty limited in what he can affect. But but what what we're doing is getting the idea out in the world, and what happens is. And what we've seen with, you know, Trumpism for this whole time is that really the end result isn't the point. The point is you're going to get a bunch, you know, at least 30 percent of Republicans all riled up about this and and everybody's going to start tweeting about it. Then you're going to see, you know, tough guys making selfie videos in their pickup trucks while they're driving down the road screaming about how they want to round up liberals and shoot them. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's 
it's, you know, what they're doing is they're riling up their base so that when they leave office, they can they can have all the persecution and and say that we need your money to fight this fight. And I think it's interesting that you saw, you know, people like Bill Barr and you saw Dave Yost, actually, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, make a very strong statement about this. But it's kind of it's kind of difficult to accept the sort of finger wagging of, of somebody like a Yost or, or a Bill Barr who have spent careers diminishing public faith in the government. Like this is the end result of what happens when you spend. I don't know if you can no, say that about is, Dave no. Yost. But, but, but he, that's his Dave party. Yost. It's his party. And, and okay, it's, but all right. I, I don't know. I, I think Dave Yost is, we don't agree with a bunch of things he's done, but he's also done some things that have been very much for the benefit of the people. The and I don't are, know that you can say he undermines the government. But, but this is the party who who always goes back and quotes that that Ronald Reagan quote about government being the problem. That seems kind of like benign speech in the context of where political rhetoric is right now. But that was sort of the pebble that started down the hill that got this ball rolling. Because you have decades of people who have had their faith in government diminished by politicians. And over time, that language got stronger. It, it became okay. the Tea Party. Then it became the Trump Party. And then it became where we're at now, where we're calling for sedition and military tribunals. And Well, it, some people are. I mean, I, st- I still think most people, most of America would not go for something like that. It's, Tom Zostowski is famous for whack job kind of proposals and this clearly fits it and he's northeast ohio's own which is why we're talking about him gotta move on it's this week in the cle how do snow days work in a district that has part of its student body learning remotely at home Laura johnson this is a, a unique to the pandemic if if i'm a school district and half my kids are are at home and the teachers are at home teaching a snow day shouldn't really apply because they're already home and they already can work around it but if half my kids are coming to school and the teachers are coming to school, how can I give them a snow day and not give everybody else a snow day? What is a district to do? <laughs> I think it depends on which district you ask. But a lot of schools that had hybrid uh, learning went for a snow day yesterday. Even some that had virtual learning, which you wouldn't have uh, expected. And the idea is it depends on how students are learning and whether power outages are getting in the way of online learning. So we're not just talking about school buses in the snow and whether it's dangerous to drive. We're talking about who has power. So teachers might be teaching from the school or they might be teaching from their homes. Students might have the materials in the classroom during hybrid learning and might not be able to switch just to virtual for that day. So it is up to these administrators to make this call. Like take Solon, as you well know, they've got their hybrid model where preschool through sixth grade is coming to school. Seventh grade and up is learning remotely. They had a snow day yesterday. Students might have left some materials at the school. Teachers might have needed to travel to the buildings to conduct classes and the roads weren't safe. So the district decided to take a whole calamity day. Same as in Parma, which is remote learning, but all the students took a calamity day because of the same reasons. So it is an interesting concept. And, you know, a few years ago, the state changed so that you don't have to have days built in, you have hours. So it depends on the school district, how much time they have built into their calendar, how much time they can take off. Yeah. It just kind of it strikes you when you think they're home anyway. Why did they get a snow day? And it was an interesting moment yesterday uh, as we digested it. I mean, I, there's also the thrill, right? If you're a kid, <laughs> you live for snow days. And so 
And when we, we first asked the people about this on, on our texting account a couple of months ago, the overwhelming response was, yeah, we should give them that. They should have that thrill because we loved having snow days when we I were kids. I know. But the thing is, my kids go to school for like three hours. So like <laughs> they can have plenty of time playing out in the snow, even if they have school. And uh, we had a unique situation here where the power went out at Goldwood School. So the teachers that were teaching remotely from there couldn't teach. So the, only some classes had a snow day which is like yeah it's a whole top teacher well world how do you going in school right now how do you count that though i mean how does I the don't state know. count that if only a third of the kids get a snow day does it count as a third of a snow day i don't That's know a really very, good question very 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 new problems you're listening to this week in the cle what do people who use medical marijuana think of Ohio's medical marijuana program? Jane Coon, I guess it's not going to be a surprise that a government-run program does not get high marks. <laughs> well, mainly they, they think the prices are too high. So they, they did this survey recently and found that a majority of patients and caregivers in the Ohio medical marijuana program, 58.4%, are dissatisfied with the prices so, and then this is kind of compounded by the pandemic and that there was a springtime rush on dispensaries, you know, just like people were stocking up on bottled water and toilet paper. Apparently they were stocking up on their stash of medical marijuana. So uh, <laughs> anyway, the prices have fluctuated a lot, but um, last week, the average price for plant material in Ohio was $284.10 an ounce. And that's down from when they when they first started up in January of 2019, when it averaged $428 an ounce. But just by comparison, in Michigan, an ounce costs about $263. And in Illinois, it costs about $378. So, so we're in the in the middle of that pack. Wow, for anybody who grew up years ago, those prices are mind-boggling. Uh, what are you What are you telling us about yourself? <laughs> Holy moly! So, are people? Do we suspect then that Ohioans who have a license for medical marijuana are saying to heck with the Ohio system? They're just driving to Michigan and buying it there. Well, I suppose that's possible. Um, a lot of them said they were paying up to two hundred ninety-nine dollars a month for their medical uh, marijuana in, I, in Ohio. But uh, anyway, sorry, Chris. Oh, no, Chris no, no. I, I just, I have a, uh, a relative who's in the, the legal weed business out in California. And, and, and one of the things that you notice in the difference is that, that once you open up to full-blown recreation and you allow more competition within the market, you require prices to go down. I think what hampers Ohio is how, one, how difficult it is to get a card here, which is, it, you know, it requires you to go through several doctor's appointments and it's really restrictive. Plus, you know, limiting the amount of people who can actually do the business. You know, I think I think the people who got into the business thought, oh, we'll have a, a stranglehold on the market. But that really doesn't mean anything until you have recreational, because what you're what you're doing in medical is laying the foundation basically for you know, eventually being able to have a recreational license. And so we don't really have that competition. It, it actually, what I think most people do is they still buy it illegally, but if they have a card, they can't be, you know, I mean, you can basically get out, get out of getting caught with it if the police ask you about it. Although so, in Ohio, you can't, I mean, you can only buy the products. You can't buy the smokable stuff, right? No, I think you can buy, you can buy 
leaf marijuana. And, you know, I mean, hell, I think some of the dispensaries sell pre-rolled joints. You know, I mean, it's not just vapes and, and edibles that they have here. But but this is, you know, this is one of those situations. Wait, 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 wait. Jane, is that right? I thought the medical marijuana, it had to be non they None. definitely sell plant material, but I'm not sure if you're prohibited from smoking that or okay. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sorry well, to be stupid. Did, about this. Does the state have anything to say about the people's complaints? They they say that, you know, they're really hoping that the prices are going to decline further as they get more cultivators operating and the, the market matures. So they they hope that that's going to come down. But to Chris's point, I mean, do you guys realistically think we'll get recreational marijuana here? I, if we do, I'm Mike DeWine will light up in front of us during one of his briefings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. At, at his impeachment hearing, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the penalty for a jail guard who takes bribes to bring drugs and other contraband to prisoners? And are these cases still happening? Chris Renaski, we talked about this trend earlier this week because of a story that we put together about this kind of thing. It was pegged to a case in which somebody was sentenced this week. But we had news yesterday that is a bit disturbing about the continuing trend. So let's start with the jail guard who's going to prison. How long is he getting? He got a two-year prison sentence that he is going to begin serving on Friday. It was actually kind of a surprisingly strong sentence, but I, the the common police judge, William McGinty, I think did this to sort of send a message in what is the first of a couple of cases that we're going to be seeing uh, related to this issue. You know, to give you some background, we've had – and we talked about this case a little bit, I think, earlier this week or late last week uh, of Stephen Thomas, who was the guard who got in trouble for for bringing – he was accused of bringing marijuana into the jail and, and giving it to a member of the Heartless Felons gang who was captured, you know, filling balloons with it and and dispersing it around the, the jail. And we, we had another case of this yesterday. I mean, Adam Faris got word that, that, that another relatively new corrections officer was put on leave and accused of, of basically doing kind of the same thing. And, and so it, it, this has been kind of a systemic problem in the jail. We had a really great story that ran over the holiday weekend that detailed Eric Ivy, the former warden who is now charged with some crimes unrelated to drugs. Uh, but but he was talking about the drug pipeline that exists within the, this jail and how how seemingly simple it was for people to buy drugs. I mean, his the the remark is that it's it's actually easier to buy buy drugs to find drugs in the jail than it was outside the jail because you know they, they know where to get it and it's you know you don't have to go out searching for it and so you know this this case is is i think just sort of the tip of the iceberg with this kind of stuff and and it's sort of starting to seem like they still haven't been able to sort of plug these holes so I don't know. It's it's kind of depressing to to see this continued issue that it's been an issue for years now and and they've known it's an issue and they they just can't seem to get a handle on it. So, I guess I'm falling back now trying to understand where county government might have gone wrong with the jail. We the, the jail has been nothing but bad news now for years. I mean, <laughs> we had a ridiculous number of deaths and we had you know, an effort to turn it into a profit center at the expense of doing the right thing by them being the wards. I mean, the county's job is to treat these people like human beings because they're the wards, but they were looking at making money. And we have nonstop drugs getting in there. 
this is really a mark on Armin Budish as county executive, and he seems completely incapable of getting this under control. I mean, he's had plenty of time. He's had plenty of evidence of what's wrong, and he simply cannot fix it. And I, but I feel like if you if you look around the country and you look at other communities, a lot of a lot of local politicians have fallen under the bus of their corrections systems. And so I, in a sense, I don't think Armin is in a unique position. I think he's in a position that a lot of you know government officials find themselves in. That, that these things are, you know, we've allowed our correction system to become so big and and this you know it's just a a monstrous kind of web of of really expensive buildings and i mean it's just a really expensive system and you know we're not in a society right now that's really happy about paying taxes in order to take care of criminals or people who are facing you know criminal charges and so corrections budgets are it's weird, but you know they we 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 funnel a lot of money into the police, but then on the back end, when it comes to jailing, is is where a lot of corners try to get cut. And when you start cutting those corners, when you stop putting people in these jails to monitor, you know, inmate behavior, you know, I mean, that's what we saw here. We saw right. diminished staffs. We saw and 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 yeah, there there is some blame to be laid at Budish's feet, but. Right. It's it's a it's a hard problem to solve. I I don't know what the answer. Nobody. I mean, it's it's there's some things that you can do, but I, I feel like drugs from getting into a jail. That's not that hard. You just you have to search the guards before they come in. They've got to be they've got to be searched. You don't. This problem isn't this prevalent everywhere in the country. The deaths certainly weren't. The problem for Budish is if he runs again, this is going to be part of the campaign against him. I mean, anybody running against him is going to say. Guy's got blood in his hands. Eight people died. That that didn't happen before. And you cannot stop the flow of drugs and cell phones and all sorts of ugly stuff into the jail. This will be a factor if he chooses to run again. Don't overestimate the sympathy that voters have for people in jail. I mean, let's I mean, let's be honest about that. I don't matter if I run a campaign that says Armin Budish has proven himself incapable of stopping drugs from getting into our jail. That's going to resonate. You know, there is no defense. What are you going to say? Yeah, but I'm saving money on the jail. I mean, there's not, there isn't a comeback to that criticism. So I, I do think it'll be a factor. Anyway, time to move on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the life expectancy of Ohioans dropping and how much does it differ based on where you live? Laura Johnston, this is a, a quick story. It's a, it's a little bit surprising. Life expectancy is dropping in Ohio. What's uh, What do we know? Yeah, so the average age of death for Ohio residents fell from about 73.43 years in 2010 to 73.16 years in 2019, according to this report from Ohio University and about 30 partner organizations. The surprise there is that we're dropping, whereas like for decades, the American life expectancy had been increasing. What's really shocking is this. It totally depends on where you live, how long your lifespan is. And this is not life expectancy. It's actual lifespan. So it's people, we're looking at actual deaths here. And your span could vary by 37 years within Cuyahoga County. Residents of Cleveland and the inner ring suburbs we're dying younger than elsewhere. Um, take Beechwood, one census tract, average age of death, 88. Compare that to a census tract in Cleveland that includes the West Bank of the Flats and part of Ohio City, 51. Wow, that's striking. It all comes back to the economic factors, access to health care and poverty. Yeah, and, and opioids uh, was a huge part of this, apparently. 
suicide, opioids, alcoholism. Yeah, it all gets back to dealing with the, the big social ills, which started to do during the pandemic. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.